G'day again, everyone. That might just be the shortest reading we've ever had at church. And uh, as I said tonight, Adam, this morning, I can't promise it'll be the shortest sermon, so my apologies. But uh, that's how important these verses are. Let's pray as we uh, look at it together. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the privilege, the joy it is that we've had as we've started our studies in the book of Romans. And we pray uh, that you will teach us from your word this morning, but especially that you will remind us or perhaps bring us to know for the first time the wonderful news uh, that we are made right with you by faith alone. And so we pray that uh, that will be the news ringing in our ears as we look at your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we got started in the book of Romans. Uh, and as I said last week, the book of Romans is the most important document ever written. Please have it open in front of you. It is so important. It's a massive claim, uh, but it's so important because this is the book where we get the clearest explanation of the gospel anywhere. Uh, and so you remember the quote I had from uh, Martin Luther last week. If we pull it up, thanks, Garth. Uh, it says this, it says, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. Uh, and if I can push that analogy a bit, uh, I want to say to you, Romans is quite chewy. It's not a snack. Uh, you have to grapple with it. You have to work hard at it. And that's my prayer for us together this term, both here on a Sunday, but also in our gospel teams during the week, uh, that you will apply yourself to it. Uh, so that you get the absolute maximum from it. But last week we got started, scan over what we looked at at the start of last week in chapter 1. We looked at the opening verses, 1 to 15, and really what we did was we set the scene. We, uh, we met the Apostle Paul, we got this great summary of the Gospel that it is the good news about Jesus. That is what the Gospel is all about, it's all about Jesus and how God has declared him to be the King declared him to be the Lord. And we also got an insight into how the Apostle Paul just couldn't hold himself back from sharing that news with everyone. So go back to verse 14 and 15 from last week, if you look there. Do you remember how Paul said he's got this obligation to tell the gospel to people? He just feels this obligation for everyone to hear the good news that he has come to know. But what I love is the way then in verse 15, it goes from an obligation to eagerness. It's like, it's not just an obligation. I want to tell it to everyone. It's such good news. Uh, and so that brings us, that was all, if you like, an introduction to the two verses we're looking at today. As I say, only two verses. Uh, and verses 16 and 17 are really the summary statement of the whole book of Romans. So this is setting us up for what we're going to be studying together over the next several weeks. The rest of the book is unpacking what he says here. So if you think about it, if Romans is the most important book ever written... Well, these two verses might just be the most important verses ever written, which is why we're giving them such specific treatment. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, and the heading for today, and it's a fairly obvious heading from the first verse, it's this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So look at, uh, remember verse 15, he's eager to preach the gospel. Then he says why. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The reason I'm eager to tell people the good news, Paul says, is because I'm not ashamed of this news that I'm telling. If you want to put it in the positive, I am so proud of this message that I'm sharing. So the obvious thing to then ask is, well, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Why, why does he have to say this? Why, why would you be ashamed? Well, it's because the gospel is actually an easy message to be ashamed of if you think like our world thinks. See, so think about this for a moment. The good news about Jesus tells us that we are sinners who need a saviour. See, to understand the gospel, 
straight away it gives you a view of yourself that is at odds with everything the world has to tell you. You see, see, it tells you, you are not good enough for God. As soon as you share the gospel, it says, I am not good enough for God. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how moral you think you are. It doesn't matter. You are not good enough for God. People don't like hearing that. Most people like to be told that they're actually pretty good and they've just got to pull their socks up a little bit and do a bit better. People like a religion where they can have some mystery. They like a religion where they can be told, go and do some good things and then get on with your life. I think that's why people love last night. So I think last night gives people that sort of religion. It's the religion that's out there and a bit mysterious, but doesn't make any challenge to you and who you are and your life. But the gospel says you're a sinner in need of a saviour. So it's a hard message to share with people, even when you know it's true. Even when you're convicted this is the truth about yourself and the world, it's hard to share a message that might offend someone. I remember a few years back, a person came to church for a while. They, they weren't a Christian, but they liked our church. Uh, and they'd been coming along for several weeks. Uh, and after a few weeks, they thought they'd give me some advice uh, on, on how we could do church better. Uh, and they said, Phil, I love your preaching, but you've got to stop all this talk about sin and the death of Jesus. They said, why are you always praying prayers where you confess your sin to God? Can't we? If you did a more uplifting message, a preacher like you, you'd bring in the crowds, they said. They were puffing up my pride you know at, at, at this point they said people today want a more positive message clearly I had not explained the message well enough to that person yet uh, more than that think about this the king we tell people about in our gospel our Lord Jesus what was his claim to fame what was the center of his message the center of his life if you like it was that he was crucified that he was dragged out, helpless and naked, that he was nailed to a cross with criminals. What, what sort of a king is that? You, you know, I mean, who could be proud of telling people about a king like that? When Paul and the other first Christian, Christians preached that this crucified Jew was the king of the universe, when they took that message to Corinth and Athens and, and Rome and places like that, people laughed. They said, this is just foolishness. I've probably shown you this before, but they found this graffiti from the third century. So a couple of hundred years after Jesus, we can put it up on the screen. Thanks, Gar. There it is. There it is. That's the actual graffiti that's scrawled on a wall. You can't really make that out. So if you go to the next one where it's sort of like a picture of it, uh, what it is is a man looking up at a donkey on a cross. And it says, Alexamenos worships his God. So you see what it is, it's someone who's made Alexamenos has become a Christian and they're mocking him. They're saying, look at that, you worship a donkey because you're worshiping someone who was killed on a cross. That's, that's nothing to be proud of. Paul felt that sort of mockery. That's the equivalent of the opinion pages of the newspaper today there in the ancient world. Paul felt that. He felt that temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And of course, we can be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel today as well, can't we? Many people think our gospel is foolishness. How can you believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago is the answer to all our problems? See, 20 years ago, that was where people focused on the foolishness of the gospel. How can you believe that a man rose from the dead? But today, it's actually more the morality and the ethics that go with the gospel that people think is foolishness. How can you believe what God's word says about morality, about ethics? Aren't Christians intolerant? 
And so it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel in a world that mocks it. So it's easy to stay quiet. It's easy to know it's true, absolutely convinced that it's true, but not want to talk about it, not draw attention to the fact that I am a follower of Christ. But Paul says, not me, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so why can he say that? Well, in these two verses, he gives us these four connected reasons that flow out of each other uh, why he's not ashamed of the gospel. So the first one, and the heading really, is because the gospel is God's power to save. Look at verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation. So this message about a crucified Jew, it might seem weak, it might seem foolish, but actually it is the most powerful thing in the world. The, the word in the Greek language for power is dunamis, and it's where we get the word dynamite from. Now, when he wrote this, he had no concept of the word dynamite, but I just love that image. He, he, he's saying the gospel is the dynamite God uses, that the power, that's how powerful it is to save people from sin and judgment, that the message of the cross, the message that Jesus died to take your judgment, that is how God blows away your sin. It's how God blows away our guilt so we can be saved. And so Paul says, how can I ever be ashamed of a message that is actually the most powerful thing in the world? These words that this whole book is about are the most powerful thing in the world. More than that, point two. The gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes. Verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful enough to save everyone, not just Jews, not just religious people, not just smart people who can understand it. It is powerful to save everyone. Do you know, this was actually one of the biggest problems people back then had with the gospel. It's universal application. People didn't like that. Back then, the fact that it wasn't exclusive enough, people argued against the gospel because of that. The irony in that, isn't it? Given that people today don't like the fact that we say the gospel is exclusive. But back then, the Jewish people thought it should just be for us and maybe also for people who are willing to obey all God's law with us. Many Greeks said, this is too simple. Should only for people who are smarter than this. You need to be. You should be, have to be smart to, to understand God. Sometimes I think Christians today seem to think it should only be for people who are respectable and people who've lived a good life. For moral people, Paul says no. The gospel is powerful to save all people, everywhere. It's for smart people and not so smart people. It's for religious people and for people who've, who've come from no religious background. It's for people whose society thinks are respectable and people whose society shuns. God does not care if you are smart, if you're not smart, if you're white or black, Jew or Gentile, he doesn't care. The gospel is powerful to save everyone. But, and this is what our modern world hates, it is for everyone who believes. See, the gospel is universally available but not everyone accepts it. That's the one catch, if you like. But if you think about it, it's not really a catch because all God asks is that we believe and trust in the message we hear about his son. The wonder of the gospel is anyone who turns and trusts in Jesus will be saved. 
But then Paul throws in a comment that just seems a bit out of place. Come with me again, verse 16. If the gospel's powerful for everyone who believes, what does it mean when he then says, first to the Jew, but also to the Greek? What does that mean? If the gospel is universal for, for all people who, who believe, in what sense are the Jews first? Some people think he's just making a historical point. They got to hear it first. They were the first Christians. I think, why on earth would you include it at this massively important part of the book, if that's all you're saying? It's more than that. He's only introducing the idea here. We're going to have to wait for chapter 9 to think more about it, which could be a long way away if we go two verses a week. But as the church got more and more diverse, which was wonderful, and as people from all nations came and heard the gospel and became part of it, there was a danger that people would forget that God had made promises to his Old Testament people. God had made promises to the Jews. There was a danger people would start to think they've had their chance. Now the gospel is for everyone else, but not for them. But Paul was really keen to remind the Gentile Christians, which is, I take it, nearly all of us. He was really keen to remind us God has not forgotten about his old covenant people. They still need the gospel. And in fact, there is a priority in them hearing the gospel. But we'll explore that more when we get to chapter 9. Because the point of verse 16 is to explain why you should not be ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. Now, at this point, I want to pause and I want to ask a question we need to think about to make sense of what we're about to see in verse 17. Uh, And that is, what do we need saving from? So if you think about it, he's just said it's God's power for salvation, but what do we need saving from? Why do we need this salvation? And so for that, we need to talk about the righteousness of God, which is the key point of verse 17. Now, understanding this is the key to understanding the gospel. The next four chapters are unpacking this. So please stick with me here. We're only dipping our toes in today. We're going to be thinking about it for the weeks to come. But come with me. It'll stretch your brain a little, but there is nothing more important to think about than this. What do we mean when we say that God is righteous? What do we mean by that? We sing about the hymns, don't we? We sing how God is righteous. We say, praise God that he is righteous. What do we mean when we say that? God is righteous. We mean that unlike us, God is holy. Unlike us, God is without sin. And in particular, we mean unlike us, God is faithful. God keeps his word. When God makes a promise... It comes true because he makes it happen. And that is without fail. And that is just a part of the the essence of who God is. God cannot help but be righteous. It's just what he is. He cannot be anything else. And that is wonderful. And we sing hymns, as I say, praising God for it. But it is also, if you think hard about it, a massive problem for us. Because we are not righteous. In fact, we are sinners. And in fact, the next two chapters of Romans, we're going to be looking at the next couple of weeks, are proving that point to us, that we're not righteous. And the righteous God, remember, whose word always comes true, the righteous God has promised that the wages of sin is death and judgment. The wages, the the cost of unrighteousness is his judgment. God in his righteousness has declared he must punish all sin. That is why God's righteousness is such a problem for us. Because God's righteousness demands that you be righteous, that I be righteous. And because we're not, because we're sinners, it demands our judgment. That's why we need saving. Because God is righteous and we are unrighteous. 
But we just read in verse 16, all those who believe can be saved. So how can our belief save us? How can something as, as, as insignificant, if you like, as what we trust in, how on earth can that save us? Just because I believe in Jesus doesn't change the fact that, that I have sinned for all my life. I'll sin today and I'll keep sinning for the rest of my life. It doesn't change the fact that I am unrighteous. That's why verse 17 is the most beautiful sentence ever written. Come with me. And this is the key point, point three. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Come back with me to the start of verse 16. I'll read it from the beginning. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Why? For because in it, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, what does that mean? And why is it so wonderful? Well, he doesn't explain the details here. We've got the next four chapters for that. So I'll explain on it here, though, to get us ready. What it means is that through Jesus, God has made a way to deal with our sin, our unrighteousness, and make us right with him. Unrighteous people like us can become righteous, but not by anything we do. Not by pulling up our socks and being more moral, not by being more religious and, and doing more religious things, not by making ourselves righteous, but just by receiving the righteousness of God as a free gift. This is the wonderful doctrine that we're going to see spelled out in chapters three and four, the doctrine we call justification by faith. God declares us to be righteous. He puts his righteousness onto us. And at the same time, he takes our sin and deals with it. The Bible has all sorts of wonderful metaphors, all sorts of wonderful images for this. So perhaps the most wonderful is that our dirtiness is taken away and God looks at us dressed in a robe of white. And of course, we know that he does that through Jesus, the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin upon himself he takes the punishment that our sin deserves and he gives us his righteousness in return. That is how God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. As I said before, the English word we've come to translate this as is justification. Now, through our series in, in Romans, I want you to write out a list of words. Do it in your gospel teams. I want you to get these words right because they are so important. The word justification means to be declared righteous. Not to be made righteous, really, because you're still a sinner like me, but to be declared righteous. It's a legal word. It means to be declared innocent. Doesn't mean that you are, you're still a sinner, but God forgives us our sin and gives us his righteousness. God looks at us and sees someone who is righteous. Some people remember it like this, you might want to write it down. To be justified means God looks at us just as if we had never sinned. Just as if we had never sinned. This is why the gospel is so wonderful. This is why it's ludicrous to be ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel, that wonderful gift of God's righteousness has been revealed to awful sinners like me and like you. But of course, that brings us to our final point and it's a repeated point because he wants to make, he's so important, he stresses it twice in verse 16 and 17. How do we receive that gift of God's righteousness? 
A final heading, it's all by faith. As I say, I've already seen it in verse 16. God's salvation is available to everyone who believes. But now he stresses it again. Look at verse 17. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does he mean there when he says it is from faith to faith? I think he wants us to see that it is from faith, from beginning to end. There's, there's nothing other than faith. And in fact, some translations, you might have a different translation, say that from be, the beginning with faith and ending with faith. They sometimes translate it. See, if you think about it, that has always been the only way to be right with God. From the very beginning, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. David believed God. And he was declared righteous. In fact, the reason Jesus can save us is because he alone was faithful. It's all faith. We are justified. We are declared right with God by grace alone. It is a free gift of God. And we receive it through faith alone. We come to God empty-handed, offering him nothing. And then we just accept the gift of his righteousness by faith alone. To make the point... Come with me to the end of verse 17. Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says the righteous will live by faith. Be honest, who's read, other than Craig up the front of church a minute ago, who's read the prophet Habakkuk recently? Oh, that's great. Look at that. A few people have. Maybe in your uh, habit challenge, people have been reading the book of Habakkuk. That's wonderful. I thought I was going to get no hands there. I've preached on Romans three times in 20 years. I've preached on Habakkuk zero times. I might have to remedy that next year. But he was writing hundreds of years before Christ. It was a time when God's people were being oppressed and abused. And God promised him a time in the future when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the other famous verse in Habakkuk. You know that verse? That's what he promised him. But God also spoke to the people through Habakkuk. And God said, in the meantime, the righteous will live by faith. To be righteous right throughout all of time is to keep trusting God and his promises. And so Paul quotes Habakkuk and he says it's the same for us. You live by faith. You receive the gift of God's righteousness by faith, by trusting in God's promises to us in Jesus. And then you continue to trust in Christ. The Christian life is to live by faith, to live continually trusting in the promises of Jesus. Faith is the key. I said it enough we are justified we are declared right with God by faith alone in Christ alone I I think there's a hymn we sing regularly that captures this so well captures the idea it's rock of ages you know that verse in rock of ages we sang it a couple of weeks ago it's up on the screen you know he says nothing in my hand I bring That's capturing it. It's saying, I don't come to God saying, look at all these things I've done. Look at how wonderful I've been. I bring nothing to God. I come empty-handed, accepting the gift of his righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. See, we are right with God only if we come with the helplessness We sing about in that verse. We are right with God only through faith in Jesus. The moment you start thinking you're good enough for God, you've lost the gospel. The moment you start thinking, ah, but God should be impressed by me, you've lost the gospel. In fact, worse than that, you are lost. 
Because if we are judged by God on the basis of our righteousness, we have no hope. We need his righteousness. Faith is the key. We are justified, we are declared right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone. I pray that you know that wonderful truth. I pray that over the next few weeks, as we plummet steps in Romans, you will come to know it even better. That's my prayer. But more than that, I pray that that is the news that is the centre of your life. I pray that that is the truth that every morning when you get up out of bed, you thank God for. That I am declared right with God. I am righteous only through faith in Jesus. Well, as we close, what are we to do with this? Two very simple things. Firstly, believe. Have faith. By the way, those words are all interchangeable. Believe, faith, trust, they all, they're all English translations of the same idea. I think trust captures it best in English. Trust in Jesus. Remember that the gift of God's righteousness is by trusting in Christ. You are not made righteous by anything else, so keep trusting from faith to faith. But then secondly, do not be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation for all who believe. Never forget that. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't stay quiet about it. We have the most wonderful news to share. Like Paul, we should be eager to share it with anyone who will listen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful verses that so wonderfully capture the message of your gospel. And we pray like Paul that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but we would know that it is your power for salvation to all who believe. And so, Father, help us not to stay quiet, but instead to be proud to trust in that wonderful Lord and his wonderful gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.